0: Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Avi Kravitz.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. I'm Avi Kravitz, and on this episode, Rapaport's News Editor Joshua Friedman and I catch up with our Special Editor-in-Chief Sonia Esther seltani upon her return from maternity leave. We discuss the recent Hong Kong show, Russian sanctions, the ongoing negotiations between the Beers and Botswana, the Tiffany-Nike partnership, the rumors of an LVMH takeover of Cartier, the potential impact of artificial intelligence on the industry. And Joshua recalls some highlights from the young Dhammetez trip to India. There's a lot going on in the industry. Sonia takes the reins in hosting this episode as we round up all the important issues facing the trade at the moment. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation between our editorial team. That's Sonia, Joshua, and myself.
0: Welcome to this new episode of the Wrap Up all Diamond podcast. I'm your host today, Sonia esther Sultani. And if you're wondering where is Avi Kravitz, is with me in the studio. Hi, Avi.
1: Hi, Sonia. I thought I'd take a step back and let our host, who hasn't been around for so long, I was so excited to have you back in the office, and it's great to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> thanks, Avi, for letting me take the, the rain today. And of course, in the studio with us is also our news editor, Joshua Friedman. Hi, Joshua.
2: Hi, Sonia. Hi, Avi.
0: So today I'm going to do this episode, like what are the big things that I've missed? I've been away for six months. What did happen in the industry? Let's pretend I didn't check social media. I didn't check any of the great news that Rappaport team produced every single day. What are the big, big things that happened for you, Joshua?
2: Well... Lots of things happened. Russia happened. There's been a number of developments in the diamond trade and the manufacturing in the rough market. I think clearly the continued fallout from the war in Ukraine is the main thing that's occupying people's minds at the moment. That's the intensity has kind of risen in the last six months as the anniversary of the start of the conflict approached. And we're now in fact past that anniversary, but that's still the main thing that people are talking about.
0: Yes, I think it's obviously a very sad anniversary, but I think the Russian sanctions have been keeping a lot of people busy in terms of writing, and uh, Avi, I know you dedicated a few research reports to the situation in Russia, so can you give me a bit of an update?
1: I'm sure I'm still trying to wrap my head around the idea of you being off social media for six months but let's put that to the side
0: I said let's pretend (laughs) It's,
1: it's, it's it's a tough ask even to pretend and we've seen how wonderfully active you are on social media but with the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the G7 nations got together and put out a statement with regard to diamonds. Diamonds was a sh- small portion of their statement, but basically stating the intention to apply additional measures on Russian diamonds. And the bottom line of that intention is, as far as we understand, is to introduce a traceability element to the sanctions. There's still questions about the current sanctions that the United States has on Russian diamonds. It basically focuses on direct imports from Russia, which would mean that you can't import rough diamonds essentially. But what about polished, what about goods that were? bought from El Rosa, taken to a trading center or manufacturing center, such as India, Israel, Antwerp, wherever it is, and manufactured into polished. And then those goods are, the understanding is that those goods have a new source of being that trading center. So there is that sort of loophole of what they call substantial transformation that those goods would be allowed to be brought into the United States. So the G7 group of nations have got together to try and circumvent that loophole. And I think there are two elements that are significant there. The first being that it's not just the United States, it's this broader group of countries that are working on those measures. And that would include, by default, I think the European Union, which is significant because of Antwerp's position in the diamond market and is a major importer of rough goods. And the second element is how do you deal with polished? How do you prevent polished well, that is that has Russian origin, but is, has gone through this journey and this uh, this trip going through various trading centers, And so that brings a traceability element to it. And so there's this sort of urgency to apply source verification in the market. And that's very significant. It's been in the works, as you know, Sonia, it's been in the works for a long time with various elements, not just diamonds affected by geopolitical issues, but also incorporating say, sustainability, ESG um, elements, that's environmental social governance elements and so this is really bringing it into regulation that sort of compels companies to apply it in those countries so it's pretty significant and i think in the long term a positive move for the industry so
0: that's great because we know we've been talking as you say about traceability for a long time so that's very sad uh, circumstances that led to maybe something positive in the long term and joshua told me how is it affecting the sentiment in the market
2: One of the things that would inevitably come from this is that you'd expect to come from this would be shortages, particularly of rough diamonds. Avi, you can correct me on this, but it seems like those shortages never quite materialized to the extent that people expected, maybe largely because the... Demand has not been so strong, so it hasn't really been much need for large inventories. But I think there's just a general sense of uncertainty, that, alongside many other areas of uncertainty, from inflation, from economic issues around the world, from the, the slow reopening of China. It's just another factor that's contributed to uncertainty.
1: I think what's on people's minds is this sort of bifurcation of the market, of the supply chain, that you'll have these goods that demonstrate that traceability element and has a verified source and those that don't or those that demonstrate a source that's not necessarily kosher, that's not from a responsible source. And so it kind of puts in the air where each company is positioning itself within those two streams. I think very black and white. I think that's just the way my mind works. And so either you're in that stream, in stream A or stream B. And I think this discussion is forcing businesses to sort of make that choice. And so it's very interesting. But as Joshua, you mentioned, it sort of injects a bit of uncertainty because it's not clear how it's going to work yet. These measures are not yet in place and it'll take a month or two before they are implemented. And so the discussions that are underway at the moment is exactly that. What does this world look like where it's required that imports have that traceability element to it?
0: So I great conversation to have. And something else that has happened is the Hong Kong show. Finally, we're back to Hong Kong, one of the biggest shows of the year. Joshua and Aviano, you didn't go, you didn't travel to Hong Kong, but you spoke to a lot of people about it. So Joshua, what was the feedback that you got from either people who attended as dealers, as buyers, or as exhibitors, returning exhibitors.
2: It was definitely it, it was an interesting and unusual task, trying to pretend to all the readers that I've been at the show by speaking to as many people as possible.
0: Now they will know the truth. That's the wrap-up old thing. We are fully transparent.
2: I mean, the, the sentiment of the show was generally positive. Most people I spoke to, in fact, everyone I spoke to said that there were huge numbers of people there. It was obviously the first time in two or three years that many people from around asia and further away were able to come to hong kong for the show as a a recap there's basically two main shows in the year in hong kong the two main jewelry shows there's the march show and the september show September show is usually the bigger one because it's right before the holidays but the March show is also important and tends to attract international buyers and another thing that sort of contributed to the high sort of traffic at the show was usually it takes place over two venues in two different parts of Hong Kong on this occasion it was just at one venue in the Wan Chai district in central Hong Kong and so it was just more intense, more packed but a number of people I spoke to said that although it was very busy the actual conversion to sales was a bit mixed it was some people had... Good sales, some people didn't, and it really depended on how much they were willing to reduce their prices. And this seemed to apply to diamonds, but also to other other areas of the jewellery market. So people were overall happy with the sentiment and the fact that China was reopening. This is an important show for the Hong Kong market because the main source of buyers are Chinese retailers, Chinese manufacturers who come to the Hong Kong show to buy diamonds, to buy jewellery. Um, and they definitely gave the indication that they were buying again for inventory in preparation for selling to the Chinese consumer market, which has been very quiet for the last several months because of COVID and because of lockdowns. So sales were a little bit slow.
1: Joshua, you you spoke to quite a few um, diamond dealers that were at the show. I, I just wonder if the cautious environment for transactions was a diamond thing or if there was other elements of the market that maybe were, you know, colored gemstones, finished jewelry, uh, watches. I Actually, I, I follow a watch guy on TikTok. He, it's a wonderful account. His name is John Buckley and he shows his negotiations with other dealers in buying and selling these sort of high-end second-hand watches. It's really fascinating. But in the last clip that I saw of his he actually mentioned the Hong Kong Show with an older, well-established New York dealer and they both said that they heard like really good things from Hong Kong and they kind of expressed regret that they weren't there. And so I'm just wondering firstly if that was a diamond specific thing. and I, I know that in your research you focused on the diamond market. and secondly, For me, the main takeaway from the Hong Kong show was that it was busy, regardless of orders, It's just people were happy to be back. And it kind of, the fact that people were there, Chinese buyers in particular, sort of gave us this indication that there's this pent up demand that's waiting to be released in China after all the COVID lockdowns. And so I think that's a source of optimism for the industry.
2: I agree, I agree. There was actually a symbolic fact that the 1st of March, which was the first day of the show, coincided with the day that Hong Kong lifted its mask mandate. And a lot of people said that it made it feel very much like a post-COVID show. The sentiment definitely was that even if Chinese consumers weren't spending in large amounts now, the recovery was on the way and in the next couple of months, they would be.
1: Sonia, that's the other thing that happened in the last six months. Six months that you were away, China was very much under lockdown and that really affected the market in a big way. You know, that you had this caution in the United States And this lockdown in China, that it's difficult to believe that that there were still these COVID-related restrictions there until January. And so the market was very quiet in that part of the world. And now it's opening up. And I think while there is still caution in the global trade, that Far East region is suddenly a source of positivity in the industry.
0: Thanks both for uh, giving me clarity about what's happening from Russia to China. Now you know I like my gossips. (laughs) that's something that the team knows i like gossips and what do i see i see that lvmh wants to buy Cartier. that's to take the conversation to something much lighter but has big big Potential repercussions. Obviously, in a luxury market, we're talking about the one of the biggest brands in the world. So, is it true? Is it not true? Is there smoke without fire? What do you think?
1: Well, maybe there is fire. <laughs> Most people have dismissed the claims. Who was it, Joshua? That broke the story. I think it was a German newspaper that um, broke the story. That
2: Finanz und Wirtschaft.
1: There we go. That sounds very reputable,
2: though. It's actually a
1: it's a Swiss paper and I think it is reputable, but them writing or breaking a story that LVMH is looking or making a bid either for Richmond, which is the holding company of Cartier and would include other brands like Buccellati and Van Cleef. But then I think the story sort of narrowed to focus more on Cartier. Yes, that was the
2: element of Richmond that LVMH seemed to be most interested in.
1: Right. And at most subsequent stories dismissed it as a rumour, as a sensational
2: sort of story. It's very likely to be that Bernard Arnault, the CEO and chairman of WMH, wants to buy Cartier. I'd also like to buy Cartier. (laughs) Um, I would just like to be able to buy one piece of jewellery from (laughs) from Cartier. I mean, it's the market leader in high-end jewellery. He'd understand why he'd want to.
0: I would have just one request, though, if they ever do the LVMH. If you do a collaboration between Cartier and Nike, just try to be a tiny bit more creative. I'm just going to put it out there because that was a big, big disappointment. When you have two big brands getting together and that's all you get, it's... So for people who really have been living under a rock for the past six months, there's been a collaboration between Tiffany and Nike. They released a limited edition collection of sneakers, you said, the Americans, trainers. And I was extremely disappointed. I thought that was just a bit, ah, okay whatever.
1: What were you disappointed in? The design of the shoe?
0: The design of the shoe? I think that's cool that two super brands get together. Why not? You know, I think that creates a buzz. The, I think the marketing campaign around it was really exciting. And,
1: and the Tiffany blue against the black actually was, I quite liked it.
0: Oh, I like I like the fact that we have a bit of dissent on this. <laughs>
1: I, I wasn't mad about the design of the actual shoe. The shoe seemed Fairly plain. I think they could have done something, I agree with you, something more interesting, more sporty maybe. But I like the contrast. I like the Tiffany Blue on the swoosh. I don't know what else they could have done Sonia I don't know
0: well there was actually an account that created in AI because AI has been so big the type of shoes they could have created together and I promise you that was fun that was really fun really really fun I'll send it to you and we'll put it maybe in one of the links as well of this podcast
1: that's interesting Sonia I need to check that out and I will but it begs another question and maybe you can give me your thoughts on this but the extent to which AI is going to be used in design and particularly in jewellery design and I think we're only at the thinking stage of that it's not even i I don't know if there have been sort of collections that have come out based on ai design but i think that's definitely something we'll see this year with all the talk around the artificial intelligence
0: i think that's a fascinating topic i'm interested to see but a lot of people i have spoken to um, especially designers you know we're talking about designers who work at the bench We're talking about people who use their hands, who use an artistic vision, who use something that is very personal. So I think this type of people found it a little bit puzzling. And, you know, if you want a real piece of jewelry, and I don't want to say real piece of jewelry, more unique, personal, individual piece of jewelry, because whatever will be created with AI is obviously a real piece of jewelry as well, ultimately. But so far, what I've seen, you can create amazing designs. You can create something that looks like, wow, I love it. But remember, you've been seeing jewelry that's been created by, the human minds and the human hands for a long, long time that has creative, that has wow. And you know, like someone that actually works with his hand or her hands to create this piece of jewelry that makes the most of a beautiful gemstone that comes from the earth. There's a story to it. There's a vision. It's not like the computer didn't create it for you. So I think if you have talent, uh, you know, there's something that I would say for anyone. If you have talent and vision, AI can be fun to help you with some research to help you to push the boundaries, to take the imagination somewhere else. But it's not going to create talent and it's not going to create vision for you. It will just replicate something that you've put in a machine, you know.
1: Well, I think the focus would be on that personal element in the same way that people who own jewelry, they relate the piece of jewelry to their own story. Part of that story, as you say, is the design and particularly as we see more sort of bespoke pieces and people really being more involved in their own design of the jewelry purchase i think that maintaining that personal elements it would be important although maybe using ai for the consumer to get involved in the design might be an interesting angle as well
2: there are areas of the industry where i'm pretty sure ai will take off for example diamond grading elements of diamond manufacturing where the savings the potential savings are great and the need for individuality is more limited it will kick in in some areas.
1: We're seeing it in our area of work with the introduction of ChatGPT that, you know, suddenly the art or skill of journalism is under question that there's so much information out there that AI can formulate an informative story about a particular topic, but... I think our personalities can account for a lot more than AI can.
0: Yes. Thanks, Avi, for saving Joshua's, my, and your job in one sentence.
1: <laughs> Killing it and saving it in the end. <laughs>
0: um, I think that, as I said, it's very, very interesting and exciting to look. But, you know, there's a lot of risk of plagiarism in terms of writing. There's things that, you know, you have been prepared that you know you can't account for the human nature i think in a lot of these things you know and the human element and the unexpected as well that comes i think you know uh, you were in munich recently for a show the meetings that you have everything all the nature all the personal touch that we brought to our writing to our research to our reporting i think you know can't be taken into account.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And I think the industry is in such a fortunate position because the more that technology pushes us towards automation and towards AI driven, whatever it is, the more that society will crave and want that authentic personal touch and the industry is fortunate in that it's sort of built for that. It's really well positioned to take advantage of both streams, I think. And that's where the industry is really in an exciting position at the moment. Because there is all of this technological advancement, but that's only amplifying the need for authentic, beautifully written and told stories that the jewelry industry is built on, really.
0: I agree, and I think nothing beats the first-hand experience as well, meeting the people, going to the places, seeing the jewelry. I think Joshua had a had a wonderful trip to India, actually, a few weeks ago already. You were with a Young Diamond tears. Yes. That is something that you can't get on an AI, what Joshua experienced there.
2: Not yet. So I went to Mumbai and Surat in India with As you mentioned, Sonia, the Young Diamanteurs, which is an organisation, as the name would suggest, for young people in the diamond and jewellery industry. About 50 of us went to visit several factories, several kind of design studios. Two diamond bosses and various other places in the industry learned a lot about the different ways the industry works in those two different cities in Surat and Mumbai, the cultures in the different companies. We went to Harry Krishna HK, and the entire staff came out and stood at the entrance and clapped all 50 of us as we entered the factory, which was kind of a fun and strange experience.
1: HK has a big staff.
2: It does. It does. There was probably thousands of them there, and you know, someone pointed out to me there were factories where the staff members, you know, the, all the manufacturers are wearing. Uniforms. some of them they're wearing their own clothes, some of them where they've got numbers on their back, some of them where they don't, they're remunerated strictly according to their performance, some of them where it's a bit more, a bit looser. So it's really very interesting to see how how some of these places work. Particularly also, I'm hoping to write a little bit more about this, but uh, the Surat Diamond Bourse is as we speak, it's currently not populated yet. It's still waiting for companies to actually move in. But we did a tour of the Surat Diamond Bourse and saw how that's going to develop. Also did an in-depth kind of behind the scenes tour of the Barat Diamond Bourse in Mumbai. Also got a few days just to meet with the industry, look at some diamonds, touch some diamonds, interview people, meet with people, get the on the record and off the record scoop. So uh, yeah, it was a very very productive time.
1: What was the most fun part for you that you that you had on the trip?
2: I think going to Surat for the first time. Actually, I, I love the weather there. Mumbai, as you know, Avi, is, um, uh, is a little humid, a little stuffy. Surat is a much drier climate. That's obviously not. I mean. There's more to it than that.
1: Tr- trust the Brit to, uh, to talk <laughs> about the weather when you when ask him what fun he had.
2: It was just a very relaxed atmosphere there, a very extremely welcoming atmosphere. And it really enables you to get a lot out of the trip and understand the culture quite in, quite well.
1: It is fascinating that difference between Mumbai and Surat, both culturally and also the role that it plays in the industry. And I think what's going to be even more fascinating as the Surat Diamond Booth has now been built... And as you say, hasn't been occupied yet. Um, it's a massive structure and it will require a lot of those Mumbai companies to shift their trading operations and their distribution operations to Surat. And so the extent to which that will take place and how quickly it will take place is something that I think will change the nature of not only the industry in India, well, particularly in India, but I think it will have a ripple effect on the way the industry operates. So it's another sort of thing to look out for
2: in the next year or two. I agree. I agree. And some, some will move, some won't. We'll see.
0: So let's watch this space then. And guys, Avi, Joshua, thank you so much for this insightful conversation. Always lovely hearing from you, learning from you. If you want, obviously, to read Avi and Joshua's analysis and reports, it's always on com. You can subscribe to this podcast not to miss a single episode because we have really exciting guests. I've been listening to the past guests in the last six months. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, walking around <laughs> every day. So I will enjoy this one as a regular listener. And it was lovely to be back on this podcast.
1: so great to have you back, Sonia. Not only on the podcast, but in the office and working with us. We're looking forward to continuing our work together. Thank you.
0: That's, what, that's why I wanted to host this podcast today, just for this good feeling. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I echo all the above sentiments and I enjoyed this very much.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rapport Diamond Podcast. For more discussions, news and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us on Rappaport.com, follow Rapport Group on Instagram and follow Rappaport on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes.